we're, we are all products of our environment and he's been used to, I suppose, to having a female presence in me around him all of his tennis days. And so for him, I think, you know, when he came to considering what his next move was coach-wise, it was, it was more about what is it that I'm looking for in a coach who has those skills, who, who can I get on with on a, you know, on a personal level, but also has the ability to help me to improve my game. And so I don't think he would ever be afraid of, you know, of him employing a female coach. And clearly he wasn't because uh, he, he's forged a successful partnership with, uh, with Amelie. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here, this week's Beyond the Baseline Tennis Podcast from Sports Illustrated. Our guest this week is Judy Murray, who joins us from Scotland. Uh, we'd had a couple requests to get her on the show, and we were able to uh, to make that happen. She, of course, is the mother of the number one player in the world, and she's also the mother of Andy Murray. Um, Jamie Murray, her older son, of course, is the number one doubles player. But uh, she is a, a tennis parent extraordinaire. She is a coach. And it's really a remarkable story what she did, basically seeding tennis in Scotland, which has now produced more champs than a lot of other countries. Uh, she's a very interesting woman. She also, as a bonus, has a tremendous accent. For all we care, she could recite the ATP's top 1,000 rankings, and we would happily listen just to hear her accent. But uh, she was terrific. I think you'll enjoy this, especially if you're into uh, talent development or uh, or coaching of any kind. So let's uh, let's throw it out to our uh, Glasgow bureau, Judy Murray. I had wanted to get you on for a long time. You've you've have a lot of fans who've requested. Uh, you've got to get Judy Murray on the podcast. So I'm glad we finally were able to do this. So thanks. I, I appreciate that. No, that's okay. I let, let's start here. I was looking at your bio, and it says uh, yeah. I'm going to quote you directly. Your Wikipedia needs updating because it actually had Fed Cup captain for British uh, team. But a, a Scottish tennis coach and mother of professional tennis players, Jamie and Andy Murray. And I, I always wonder how, how you self-identify. I mean, how do you prioritize it? And when you're at, you're at events, um, we, we see each other all over the world. And I always, I always wonder sort of are you, what extent are you there in the capacity of, of a mother of two top players? And what extent are you there as a tennis coach? Uh, well, I, I always, well, I, I was always at the tournaments when the kids were young. I was always there as their mom and, 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 and their coach and kind of chief supporter, I, I guess. I think, uh, when I got the opportunity to do the captaining the GB Fed Cup team and just at the end of 2011, it then meant that when I was at the major events, you know, the slams or the events where there were men and women at the same venues, um, then I obviously had a Fed Cup hat on as well, and uh, and I was uh, watching, supporting, observing uh, the British players, uh, Joe Conta, Heather Watson, Laura Robson, uh, etc. So uh, I always uh, I kind of, uh, I, and I think it has always helped me through all the time that I was, I suppose, a tennis parent. I, as of of young players, I was also the Scottish national coach, and I think it helped me a lot to have that coaching role where I was responsible for a lot of other players, and it meant I didn't get so caught up emotionally in what my kids were doing, um, which, you know, that can be quite a difficult thing for parents. So I, I think it allowed me to be a little bit, a little bit more detached from what my kids were doing, the fact that I had a, a another role to play. 
I, I've heard, I mean, I encourage people to look it up. It's really a remarkable story how you, you got started. You were a former player yourself, right? I, I was a, I was a, a tennis player, a Scottish tennis player, uh, which uh, I was the Scottish number one for, for many years. And that might sound quite good, but it's not really. If uh, tennis is such a minority sport in Scotland, I think, you know, when I was young, you played tennis in the summer and you played badminton in the winter because there were no indoor facilities and we have terrible weather. So the, the pool of people to compete against in Scotland was very small. So it was quite easy to become one of the best uh, in Scotland simply because we were a minority sport. Um, but, I, yeah, I was uh, I was always a tennis player. I think the, maybe the best thing I did was uh, win the British Hardcourt Women's Doubles Championships in 1981 and played for Great Britain in the World Student Games. That was about as, as good as it got for me. So I, I was decent, but I think when I... When I was young, uh, because we were in a minority sport, because we were in a country that had no indoor courts, etc., there were no opportunities for players. There were no coaches when I was young. I learned to play the game by playing the game with the people at my local club. So I was never really coached. And I think that's where my love of the game is all around the tactics and reading the game and making things difficult for an opponent. So when my kids were small and they started to get interested in tennis, for me, playing with them was all about teaching them how to play the game rather than how to hit the ball, which is quite different. I think nowadays, so much coaching, so much programming that kids get trained how to hit the ball, but not necessarily to think about how to compete and how to win and how to outfox an opponent. Murray claims that her playing style did not have any big shots, but she was quick around the court and read the game well. That sounds. That also sounds. I was uh, a good athlete, so I would run all day. I think I was one of those people that I, I hated losing more than I liked winning. So I just used to run around all day, all and put lots of balls back, and I try and make it as tough as I could for opponents without me having any power or any big shots. I, I could drop shot and log <laughs> quite well, um, and I think that's maybe one of the things that Andy copied from uh, playing I was, was going to say at, you're, at, uh, at young age, probably <laughs> the only thing. Um, but yeah, I was never coached, so I never really learned how to maybe max out on on what I had. But I was a, I was a quite a vicious competitor, and I was a decent athlete. So that that was my strength, I would say. So I, I want to ask you about. Um, I mean, I, I'd read stories of you driving a, a van full of kids around Scotland, and I, I don't know if you saw there was a recent New York Times piece a couple of days ago about a Brazilian player now. Um, um, whose name I'm blanking on, Pereira, I believe, who who didn't have indoor plumbing. And we hear about the Williams sisters, and we hear about Djokovic in, in Serbia. What do you think the role is of, of privilege versus sort of deprivation in tennis? I mean, what what is it like? Do you, do you think you can have too much? Do you think that deprivation really is a motivator, the way it's it's sort of shorthanded? What, what do you think about that? Well, I... I could probably only speak from uh, my experience, uh, you know, in my country and sure. uh, certainly of the, you know, when I got the opportunity to become the Scottish national coach in 1995, that might sound like a big deal, but it wasn't really because we were a minority sport. At the, at the time that I got that role, I didn't really have any business to be the national coach. All I had was I had a, a, a decent qualification. I was a former player. 
Um, and I had loads of passion and loads of enthusiasm to create opportunities for the kids in Scotland. Probably a lot of it driven from the fact that there weren't those opportunities when I was a junior and I would have loved opportunities to compete overseas or even to compete out with Scotland um, in, in England. And when I got the, the chance to do it, we had one indoor centre in Scotland that had four courts and it happened to be five miles from where we lived. If that centre hadn't been there, I don't think my kids would have played tennis because there wouldn't have been the opportunity. But I think because we just had one indoor centre, we had we didn't have much money as a family, we didn't have much money as a federation. We all had to muck in and we all had to work hard. And many of the sessions that I ran were, you know, eight children on one court. And I think because we didn't have very much, the children all appreciated what they got. The only thing I ever insisted on was that they tried their hardest, whatever they were doing. The winning and losing thing was immaterial to me. I understood enough about it being a, a long-term project and you have to learn through your mistakes and through your failures, etc., etc. But um, trying and appreciating the opportunities that you have is, is a big thing with me. And, um, and I think that of the children that I started with when I became the national coach, I started with 20 children from all across Scotland. Scotland's a reasonable size of a country, pretty much the same size as, as England, but with only a tenth of the population. Um, but I started with ten, 20 children aged between 7 and 11, and of those children that I started with, four became Davis Cup players and one was a Fed Cup player. And obviously we had two Grand Slam champions, Olympic um, medals, uh, Commonwealth Games gold medalist Colin Fleming, um, and Elena Baltacha made uh, top 50 of, of the WTA. So really as, a, as a, a nation who started with nothing, we really got a lot out of what we didn't have. So right. for me, it's always been about, it's not about what you have, it's what you do with what you have. And also when I started in that job, there were no staff. There was just me, £25,000 salary, £90,000 budget, and, and no staff. So any coaches that I used had to be paid out of this £90,000 budget for the entire country. And I started a performance coach development program and I started with six coaches and uh, all of those six coaches are all still involved in pretty high positions in either Scottish or British tennis and the best known one to you would probably be Leon Smith who's our Davis sure, Cup sure. winning captain and head of men's tennis at the LTA who started with me when he was 21 years old and had just dropped, dropped out of college. So we we created something really out of out of nothing. With without uh, and you you didn't have the LTA Wimbledon proceeds, correct? No, we 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 didn't. Uh, I think back then nobody was really particularly interested in what we were doing in Scotland. And when they started to sit up and take notice and send people up to have a look at what we were doing, was really when our kids uh, started to dominate the national sort of under 12 championships and suddenly it was like wow you know something's happening up there what what are they doing up there and the, the truth of the matter was that what we'd created was a very sort of family type environment almost like a little cottage industry out of one indoor center where everybody just mucked in and got on with it we you know the parents were our hidden workforce they ran trips to tournaments they manned matches they put up kids who lived you know long distances away and uh, really, I, I think looking back, I can see that it was quite remarkable what we did. But at the time, we were just having great fun, great adventure, and trying to help the kids to get better at the sport that, that we all loved. 
it's funny, even the, the federations that are that are well-funded and have the good fortune of having a major now all talk about, oh, we, we've got to centralize everything and create this family environment. It sounds like you came about that rather more organically. Um, yeah, I, I think we were, we, we, that was all we could do, really. We just had this one we just had this one center. It didn't even belong to our federation. It was it was at a university, but our federation uh, came to an agreement to block book a certain amount of courts, which we could we obviously had to pay for, and and then we could use to to establish a program. So, yeah, it was it. You know, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. I brought in coaches from other countries to train me and the 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 the, the coaches that were on this development program this workforce building that we that we went through because i realized that i couldn't do everything by myself and also that i didn't know enough so for me it was always about what do we need to know who's going to help us who do we bring in how do we spend our money very wisely and because we had so little money we had to be very smart with it so nobody was spoiled nobody was having one-on-one lessons on an indoor court everything was shared and uh, i i think you know like looking back we obviously pretty much maxed out and People ask me all the time about how many hours was Andy doing when he was right, right. when he was ten, and how many right. hours was Jamie doing, and how many competitions and all the rest of it. And I think, you know what? When my kids were little, they were doing all sorts of other sports as well, and they, Andy in particular couldn't concentrate for more than forty minutes at a time. <laughs> so there was no point in doing loads of volume. It was all about developing the skills, and many of the skills that you need for tennis can be developed by playing other sports. How hard was it to turn Andy, in particular, over to others? Uh, actually, that wasn't difficult for me. I I do get asked that uh, quite a lot, and I think you you get to the stage where uh, you realise that well, one, I think when when you're a mum of boys, boys get to an age where it's it's not really that cool to have your mum uh, <laughs> hanging round all the time, and I kind of got that. Um, but I also got that it's far more important to be the mum than it is to be the coach, and that was. Um, I think when I started to get that feeling, that was really when I took on uh, Leon Smith. That kind of happened at just exactly the right time because Leon at the time was maybe 2021, and he had this bleach blonde hair with the you know the, the center part thing that I think they called it curtains in those days, and it was he had a diamond in each ear, and he was a decent player, and he was just really cool. So all the young boys that were in our squads thought he was just the greatest thing, and. And he came along at a perfect time, you know, when Jamie was maybe 12 and Andy was 11. And uh, so I mentored Leon to help the boys. And where I was always around the center, somewhere I wasn't in their face. And I think that was uh, very important as well, that I understood that for me it's about finding the right people or the right environments at the right time to help them to, to go forward. And I still hold that um, belief now. I don't know if you're you're a basketball fan. Steph, Steph Curry, a very popular player here in the United States, and one of the interesting things about his story is that he he has a younger brother who is a fine player and plays professionally, but isn't quite at Steph Curry's level, who's you know the the best player in basketball this season. And I'm wondering, I mean, I think about you and and Andy and Jamie, and I'm wondering what the dynamic is when you have two sons, two brothers that are both very talented, but they're at different levels of success. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think that's always been in some ways a, 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 a little bit a little bit tricky. But for me, it was always about trying to, you know, to support them as much as I could 
in whatever was the right way for them at the time, you know, wh- whatever they were doing at any at any given time. And, um, you know, so Andy went to Barcelona um, when he was 15 to, to train at Sanchez Casal Academy. Jamie stayed on at school. He finished school. I thought that he was uh, going to go to an American university on a, on a scholarship. And he decided that he didn't want to do that, that he wanted to play tennis. And... Um, you can't create an opportunity for one child to do something and not give the other child the same opportunity. So Jamie went and trained in France. He plays a completely different game style from Andy, so there's no point in him going to Spain and having them at the same place, training on clay and grinding from the back of the court. didn't didn't suit the way that Jamie <laughs> right, played. Right. So he went to France. He, he trained at Bob Brett's Academy in Paris on faster courts. That became a financial a huge financial challenge to me to try to make that make that work and uh, you know a couple of years later when it was pretty clear to me that Jamie wasn't going to ever get to a stage in singles where he could even cover his own costs but that all his skills were perfectly suited to doubles it then became for me about trying to create the right environment for him to develop his side of the game and uh, that was when I found um, Louis Caillet, the Canadian coach who specializes in doubles, and uh, asked him if he could help Jamie for a bit. I couldn't afford any more than about six weeks. This was in 2006. And uh, actually, eight weeks after he started with Louis, he made his first ATP tour final in, in LA and losing to the Bryan brothers. So, you know, the, the importance of taking the time to find the right people and try and put them in the right places uh, is crucial and the thing is I never really knew what I was doing I was always sort of going with my instinct and and common sense and uh, you just have to hope that it's right I didn't always get everything right but um, by and large they've done pretty well I would say so um, we should, uh, we, we will tee this up in the intro, but, uh, we, we, we do note that, uh, as of today, Jamie is ranked number one and holding on. Yeah. And, uh, we, 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 I don't know if you look at that points lead, it, it's sort of a week to week, uh, proposition, but, uh, that was a, it was a great achievement for him, uh, in Australia and then achieving the number one rank. Hold that thought, Judy Murray, real quick. You know this as well as I do. The NFL draft is coming up fast, and SI has a new mini series that takes you much deeper than any big board would ever do. Listen to draft season, where each pick is a player, each player has a story. The latest episode is Penn State quarterback Christian Hackenberg. Lindsey Schnell delivers the goods on this one. Hackenberg talks about his experience convincing teams that he can be the face of their franchise. Bonus tracks from his brother. I'll leave it at that. But draft season is, is something terrific. We're really proud of it here. It's on iTunes. It's on Stitcher, SoundCloud, SI.com, backslash draft season. Check it out. What, what's your level of involvement now in their careers? Um, I don't have so much involvement now, which uh, actually I'm really pleased about. I, I think, uh, you know, at this time of my life, I'm, I'm 56 now. Um, I think, you know, four, four or five years ago when I got the opportunity to do Fed Cup, I, that was great for me because that was the first time that somebody somebody had said, we are recognizing you for being a good tennis coach rather than being Andy and Jamie's mom. And that gave me, uh, you know, uh, actually a, a really big kick uh, doing that doing that role. I really enjoyed it. And uh, 
But I've also realized that we have a huge opportunity to grow the game in Britain against the success that Andy and Jamie have had, and particularly against Andy's Wimbledon win and the Davis Cup win at the end of last year. So two years ago, I started a program called Tennis on the Road. It's um, basically a van full of equipment, and myself and another coach, we, we drive it around Scotland, and we take it into places where you might not normally find tennis. You might not find tennis courts. You certainly won't find tennis coaches. And we try to build a workforce from parents or teachers or volunteers, students. We show them how to get kids and adults started in, in tennis, and then we go back three or four months later and we do a follow-up on it. And the whole grassroots thing is completely stress-free. It's great to be able to share all the experiences that you've got and your, your passion for the game. And I think when you've been working for a long time at the top end of the game on that, that sort of pro circuit, it is actually really stressful and the the your whole social social and family life really gets hit for six um it, it's just not there so i've enjoyed being able to step back and the boys have good teams of people around them so they're perfectly happy plus they're they're very much older now you know andy's 28 and jamie's 30 they're both married they can look after themselves right, <laughs> so right. now it's time for me to do some of the things that i enjoy Someone who suggested we get you on the podcast said, if you get her, you have to... I, I don't have it in front of me, I'm, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess this up. But they said you have to ask her about... It was like Frida Forehand or, or Faith Forehand. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, it, it was some character you used? To, I, I don't... That's all I know. What's, yeah. What, what is Faith this Forehand? Is, um, this was a, lit, a program, a fun starter tennis program for little girls uh, age five to eight. And it's called Miss Hits. And the Miss Hits are a little girl group of pals uh, who each represent a tennis stroke. So Faith Forehand, Bella Backhand, Valentina Volley, Sasha Smash, Selena Serve, and Alejandra Ace. <laughs> and basically it's a 12-week program. You do a different character each week, two times six-week blocks. And it's a, it's a real fight. It's a bit like going to a tennis party every week. But it was born out of my getting the opportunity to captain Fed Cup. And as you probably know, I'm, I'm very competitive. And so I was looking at, well, how do we win the Fed Cup? How did, does Britain become a much stronger tennis nation? And when I looked at the bottom end of the game, it's very clear we had four times as many boys coming into the game as girls. We have very few female coaches. And I thought, right, we need to develop something that is really going to attract little girls into our sport. And I did all the research of what, what are the barriers to girls coming into our sport at a young age. And one of the big barriers was I don't like tennis because I get cold. It's an outdoor sport. <laughs> They're standing around. They can't hit the ball and, and they get cold. I don't like tennis because of the boys. Boys are naturally more noisy, more physical, more competitive than girls, and sometimes they're intimidating the girls in a mixed group. I don't like tennis because it's too difficult. We have uh, a complex coordination sport. It's a difficult one for little little uh, ones to get the, the hang of. So, and, and one of the other ones was, I don't like tennis because I don't like the coach. And that was usually because it was a male coach. And if you think about little girls, they spend most of their formative years with their mum. And most of the teachers in primary schools are female. So sometimes if your first experience of a sport or a hobby is with a guy who's perhaps not experienced in dealing with little girls, that can be off-putting as well because male coaches tend to find boys generally much easier to, sure. to deal with in a sporting environment. 
so I removed all the barriers. I made it all girls. I made it indoors. I made it just deliverable by female coaches or teachers or, or mums or students or, or whatever to increase our female workforce and to get more little girls playing. And I looked at all the things that little girls like, um, you know, like dancing, like music, like being with their friends, like sparkles, like cartoon characters. And I wrapped all of these fun things that engage little girls around the skill-building activities that you need to play uh, a difficult sport like like tennis. And over a two-year period, I wasn't working on it full-time, I came up with the, the Miss Hits program. And uh, we have a website, we have an app that teaches the kids how to keep a score and play the game in a very child-friendly, colourful uh, way, so that if they go from misses into mini tennis and eventually play in a little competition, they actually know what competing is all about and how to keep the score, because this is how kids learn now. So we made our sport contemporary, we made it fun, we made it attractive, and we have, over the last 18 months, trained up over 300 uh, coaches in, in Great Britain, and uh, we're having enormous, enormous success with it. So it's been great, because for me, it was, uh, I thought, I'm just going to invest in that myself. This is going to be something that I'm going to do um, for me. And uh, I joined forces with the LTA once I'd set it up, and uh, they're rolling it out across the country in terms of, you know, setting up the coach education courses or the coach workshops for us to go go to so um it's been a it's been a great success and i've really enjoyed it and it sounds like there really is a difference between coaching boys and girls you've discovered yeah there there is a big uh, a, a big difference and this is why i i'm not in any way suggesting that we should have a female only workforce working with girls not suggesting that at all but i think that Female coaches are very important in the retention of girls in sports simply because female coaches understand how girls tick. And if you look on the WTA tour, I mean, it, it is packed with male coaches. Right. I know that the you know being on the road for 30-odd weeks of the year doesn't necessarily uh, uh, suit most women, particularly if they have uh, families. Um, but... In terms of understanding the emotions and the behaviours and the, f the feelings of girls and the fears, perhaps, of, of girls, I think we need more female coaches around or more, just maybe more female presence around the, the WTA uh, tour events. Uh, I'll... Um um, yeah, I will point out the obvious and say your son has a, has a female coach, not on the WTA, but on the ATP tour. Um, I, I always thought that, that Andy's, and I, I hate to characterize it as this feminism, which is how it's often portrayed, but um, there's a real sort of equality, whether it's not, not just hiring Amelie as his coach, but you know, he's tweeting out his fondness for Taylor Townsend. That's not something you would ordinarily expect to see of a, of a top five male player. Do, do you feel... That's that's a tribute to mom at some level. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I I I I expect it is. I mean, we're we are all products of our environment, and he's been used to, I suppose, to having a female presence in me around him all of his, you know, all of his tennis days. And so for him, I think you know when he came to considering what his next move was, coach-wise, it was it was more about what is it that I'm looking for in a coach um, and who can, who has those skills, who, who can I get on with on a, you know, on a personal level, but also has the ability to help me to improve my game and develop the skills that, that, 
that that I need the things I need to add to my game. So I don't think he would ever be afraid of um, you know of him employing a female coach. And clearly he wasn't because uh, he, he's forged a successful partnership with uh, with Emily. I'll uh, I'll say it so you won't have to, but I but I feel like I don't know if you, he had a, a, a bit of a, a Twitter back and forth with Stakhovsky about equal prize money, and and again he's he's made a number of comments that have uh, have been very much in, in in favor of supporting women's tennis, and it, it always struck me that was a nice uh, sort of validation of of, of his mother. Um, <laughs> I, I will I, I'm curious how much easier or not easier it's gotten to be watching him play now. I mean, obviously he's He's won Wimbledon. He's won multiple majors. He's achieved everything. He could retire tomorrow and be a Hall of Fame player. Does that allow you to watch him with a little more enjoyment, or is it the same as it was when he was 19 years old? No, I think uh, I think now for me it's it is uh, it's less enjoyable. I mean, I I think that the expectation levels on him now are uh, you know are huge, and I found it harder the last years um watching i enjoyed it much more when he was when he was younger and he was on his way up and he was always learning and it was always about improving and learning what the next stage is and and so forth and i think that when you get to the top of the game i think it's i think it's tougher because you have more to lose than more to gain you're almost protecting something when you when you're up there or that's kind of the way that i sort of feel about it i know that you know for for andy and for jamie the the grand slams are the key things those are the things that they want to they want to win that they want to focus on but i i have struggled um i think I have struggled to watch. I would have. I would love to be able to say that I sit and watch and I really enjoy it. But I used to enjoy it a whole lot more when they were emerging players um, and they were on their way up. I think there's a different mindset to once you're up there. It's one thing getting to the top, but actually staying up there, it's a different type of mindset. And I, I've certainly found that. Um, I found that harder. That's very interesting because I, I think most people intuitively might think the opposite, that it's hard when you don't know if if your child is going to win or lose or if this is going to be a real setback or if there's a financial component when your your, your son has made it and uh, it's it's not as though his his wages are going to be depict, particularly dependent upon this or his, his legacy. It's it's still it's still hard for you to watch. That's that's interesting. Yeah, yeah it, it is. I think uh, – I think it's uh, I think it's all part of it. It's a parental reflex called the writing reflex, where you just want things to go right for your child, whatever they're doing. Uh, it's just that my kids happen to what they do happens to be played out in front of right, <laughs> millions right. of millions of people, and the British press, as as you know, are uh, renowned for being uh, they can be quite vicious with <laughs> when they want to be, and of course. When everything's going well, everything's fine. When things are not going so well, then everybody has an opinion about it, and that can be that can be quite difficult, I think, for everybody as well. But yeah, I I definitely have found it harder to watch and enjoy uh, since actually since both of them got towards the top of the game. What about social media? I mean, you're you're a terrific. I would encourage everyone to follow you on on Twitter. You're you're a great follow, and you're 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 quite active. That's actually how we corresponded. And I'm curious, you're you're 
in the same sort of echo chamber and ecosystem as both your sons, when you're on social media and you know, I mean, even even this week, I mean, Andy Murray had responses about uh, – had comments about doping that Boris Becker took issue with, and that's coming across your feed. What is that like for you? I mean, you're, you're, the, you're the rare parent uh, well, who's in I, their kids' social I media world. I would say that, um, I mean, I quite I enjoy Twitter, but the last, I'd say maybe mm, six to nine months, I, I'm not avidly looking at Twitter and reading my, reading my feeds on a daily basis. I can go for days without looking at anything. That doesn't mean I go for days without posting something, but I'm not sitting looking at Twitter all day long. I tend to look at Twitter if I, if I want some information about something. I mean, if I want to speak to my friends, I speak to them on the sure. phone or I go and meet with them. But if I, people that I follow on Twitter is usually for information or if they are people from, um, other sports or other activities that I know and I'm quite interested in what they're up to. But I'm not glued to, to Twitter to, you know, to, to do that. But I think, uh, you know, with with Andy, um, one of the things, one of the many things that I really admire about him is that, you know, he wears his heart in his sleeve and he isn't afraid to speak up for what he believes in. And uh, we need more people to speak up in tennis if we're, you know, we have to keep up as a sport. We have to keep making ourselves as engaging as possible to uh, to the fans. And therefore, you need the players to create personalities around what it is they do. That's what fans engage with. It's harder to engage, uh, I think, to engage fans in an individual sport. I mean, what, what I saw with um, Davis Cup because uh, we had a number of home ties that were in GB and, and a few that were in Scotland, was how many peop- more people in Great Britain, and Scotland in particular, got behind tennis through the Davis Cup because it was a team. You know, you look at the, the, the number of people that support football or rugby or baseball or basketball on a weekly basis versus who goes regularly to an individual tennis competition. So I think that, you know, tennis has to work hard to create personalities and fun formats in order to keep it contemporary and uh, entertainment as much as being a sport. I think that's kind of how things are going now. So I, I think that, you know, you need more more of the top players to speak out about what they what they believe in and keep challenging uh, the ATP and the WTA and the ITF to make our sport as exciting as it possibly can for the fans out there. Because without the fans, there is no sport. How, how far do you go with that? I mean, I, I my, my pet peeve that I speak about probably too much is I think best of five is just ludicrous. But you know, when when you hear everything on under consideration from four game sets to no, I mean, how, how far do you go in terms of changing formats that might be more fan friendly? Well, I think what, what I've enjoyed, what I enjoyed watching um, was the IPTL. I like all these fun rules. I think, you know, end of season, shorter matches, you know, I, I like all that stuff. I wouldn't like to see that in a Grand Slam, you know, like in the major events. I wouldn't like to see that. But I would probably like to see the actual ATP and WTA Tour calendars becoming less congested, less pressure on the players, and that the actual calendar was peppered with more of these fun-type formatted events for the fans. I, I think that's the way that I 
if I was in charge, that that's the way that I would like to, to go with it. So the players can still earn money. The fans get to see a different brand of, of, of tennis that is quicker, it's faster, it's more engaging. It, you know, it, it involves the fans a bit more. Um, but when it comes to the major events like the Slams and the Master Series, um, for example, you, I, I think I still would want to see um, the traditional best of best of three sets normal scoring or best of five sets normal scoring as it's all as it's always been. But I think I'd decongest the calendar a bit and pepper it with more of these kind of fun formats, a bit like what cricket has done with the 2020. Yeah, but I was going to say it's, it's like cricket. Yeah, exactly. Um, why, why don't we end here? I, I, I feel like it, it must be. You know, it's sort of unimaginable to me to have children that would achieve these heights. One son is the number one doubles player. The other is a a multiple Grand Slam champion. But even more so when you had such a hand in taking them there. I I guess, I mean, it it sounds like a cheesy question, but what's sort of your biggest sources of pride? I mean, what when when you reflect on this on this journey, what do you you think is going to stand out as what made you proudest of, of Jamie and Andy? Um. Well, I think you know obviously the biggest prizes in our sport are the are the the, the grand slams. But I think for me, uh, any time that I've watched them playing together is the most emotional for me. Watching them walk out together for GB in the Olympics or the Davis Cups, that's huge because they're side by side and they're just my two little boys and they're going out to do battle with, you know, with with everybody else. Um, that's always when it hits me the most. And also when when we go back to our tennis club in Dumblane, which it doesn't happen so often now, certainly not for, for the boys, but next next week um, Jamie will be there with the Davis Cup trophy. The, it is coming to Scotland next Tuesday, and he's spending a whole day in our town at visiting all the schools with the trophy. We're doing some lots of fun tennis sessions with the kids, and then we will end up at the club. And that's where that's where it always hits me is when we get back to the club. It was the same when Andy won um, the U.S. Open and he did a kind of open-top bus thing through the town and we ended up at the tennis club. And I was fine all day until we got to the tennis club. And that's when it takes me back to we were just a regular family, no money. I was a volunteer coach at our local club. I was trying to get more kids interested in playing. I was trying to help the existing kids to get a little bit better. I ultimately started to try to improve myself as a coach in order that I could help the kids at the club better. And I just think about them playing in the third men's team and the under-12 boys team or the primary school team. And I still that's when it hits me that I, I really can't believe where they've ended up at one and two in the world and, and winning the, the Davis Cup and slams and Olympics and stuff like that. That's when it hits me is when I go back to the club because we, we were a country with no track record whatsoever in tennis terrible weather no no facilities no world class coaches nothing and you know out of that suddenly they're right up at the top of the of the world game and yeah that that's when it really hits me and that's when you know it it makes me really want to keep doing what I'm doing with my van and keep spreading the word and getting more people playing because I never ever as a Scottish tennis person myself could ever have envisaged that we would be in this position that we'd have world-class players and world-class events you know we had the last 16 and the semi-final of the Davis Cup in uh, Glasgow and uh, you know when you you're sitting there and you're looking around and there are 9,000 people going absolutely crazy for tennis and it's Scottish players on the court and it's a Scottish captain 
and for me that was just I mean that's just blows you away never you I mean we could hardly get a tennis result in our in the sports roundup of our local paper or our national papers when when I was playing and now it's front page back page it's you know it's it's right out there so we absolutely have to capitalize and that's kind of my my sort of last goal is to to build um, a tennis center from which I can work and from which I can share everything that I've learned over 25 years of starting as a volunteer and finishing up as Fed Cup and um, watching my kids win major events uh, that I can share that with uh, the next generation of coaches so that when the boys stop playing and when I'm no longer around there are people who can continue to show that you know tennis is a great game for everybody to play regardless of what level you get to um, and that actually that anything is possible you know if you if you believe if you want to make something happen anything is possible and I think that the boys have shown that because whoever would have believed that we would have a couple of um, Grand Slam champions or Wimbledon champions uh, coming from a little town in Scotland uh, called Dunblane. It's a great story. I want to read your book, <laughs> and I want you to then work for the U.S. What, what can we do to get you to work for the USTA? We'll pass the hat right here. But um, it, it sounds as though they're, Scotland is lucky to have you, but uh, if you ever get tired of, of the weather or the highlands, there's a facility outside <laughs> Orlando, Florida. Think, we'll see to it. I think sometimes it too, uh, it's easier to make things happen if you're in a small place. I yeah, think, right, uh, right, right. You know, for, for me, I... I it, what what I did, I did what I did, and I didn't really think too much about it. For me, it was a big adventure. But when I think about it, we just had one center. We started with 20 kids, and maybe it's easier to make things happen when it's just a small field. I think the bigger that the field is, perhaps the harder that it is. But you can probably trace all great athletes back to a teacher a, or a coach, somebody who inspired them and spotted the talent and helped to create the opportunities that, that got them on the way. And I think probably everything that drives me now is about creating opportunities for more kids to play the game and more Scottish kids in particular to believe that there is a pathway to the top of tennis if they if they want it and they're prepared to work hard enough at it. Well, it's, it's, it's a great story, and I hope we see more of you uh, after Jamie and Andy. With with your next batch of Scottish champions, but this this was great. Thanks, <laughs> thanks so much. I've I've taken a lot of your You're time. You're welcome, John. Um, I'm glad we finally did this. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> you, you delivered. No, this was great. Um, I look look forward to seeing you soon. And um, this this was, was lovely talking to you. And you speak to you soon. Thanks, thanks, Bye. Judy. Take care. All right, that was Judy Murray. We're happy that we were able to uh, to finally make that happen. She was speaking to us from Scotland, and I thought had a really a number of interesting insights, uh, not just about her sons, Jamie and Andy, but about coaching and talent development more generally. I was only half kidding about her working for the USTA. I do think it would be helpful uh, to have someone who came at things a little differently as she did. But anyway, um, thank you to Judy Murray. We'll have another podcast next week. Our usual call out here, props to our expert producer, Jamie Lasanti. You can follow me Twitter at John underscore Wertheim. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. Hear the whole panoply, as it were, the whole network of SI Podcasts at si.com backslash podcast. See you next week. We'll have a new guest.